Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Cocked and loaded, boys. Woo, girl. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Uh, he really comes up with the best just random and sayings and just get him talking he's just magical yeah it really really is <laughs> welcome back guys it's uh barstool politics i am your host nick mcguire joined as always by dr bill muck from north central college and dr phil barker from Keene state college hi guys hey nick hi hi uh before we get started uh all of the usual fun stuff if you guys um something i just lost my train of thought uh <laughs> because uh I have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, guest suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. I promise we'll get those up to date as soon as it's humanly possible. Uh, the podcast itself, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate the support. And I'm flipping through two pieces of paper over and over <laughs> again. Uh, we're partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a uh, real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy or sell shares in future political events. Uh, big one coming up is the Democratic debates. So keep an eye on uh, those markets. I think it will be very, very fun. It's going to be fun right. to watch before and after. And actually, as the debate plays out, you can do that in real time to see who's doing well and who's not doing well. Yeah. Mm hmm. I made and some next, trades today for the first time in a while. You're trading. Who are you buying yeah. and selling? I, well, I'm buying. I bought some Elizabeth Warren. She's she's come up. She's up to like she's now in the second behind. I mean, she was close, but it's like she's a solid second now in the mm -hmm. in the um, the the market for Democratic uh, primary. She's a good bet. Um, she's she's. I would think that her and Biden are good money. The other yeah. one, so like if Buttigieg has a good debate or somebody like that, I would still buy no because I think those guys are real. I mean, they're interesting candidates, but they're still long shots. But yeah. if they get a little debate bump, good time to buy no, Nick. Yes. I think, yeah. I think you're going to see some movement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm putting I, all my week. money into Swalwell at this point because he is just on fire. <laughs> He's the greatest there, dummy there was ever. Another, another guy declared yes, yesterday? Yes. Earlier this week. Uh, so we're up to 20. Three twenty-four. I, I've stopped. Yeah. I, it's too much. It's too much. <laughs> How yeah. do you think at this point, when it's this far in, <laughs> right. the, the runners are out there, and you're going to come in as a no-name and think at this point you're going to shake it up? So you're like, telling me there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> you're still you're still considering your run. Right, I'm considering. Bill? I'm I'm fundraising now. It's not going well. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, next week we're gonna we're gonna spend the whole episode talking about the Democratic debate. So it's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, we've got a special guest coming, Phil, too, right? Yep. Yeah. We gotta get. Um, Jake LaHutt from uh, the Keen Sentinel, um, who's a reporter from the local paper, is going to be on with us. Who do, who does, uh, who covers all the New Hampshire primary stuff. So he should, I 
I think have some interesting stuff to say about the candidates, about the debates. It'll be good to get his perspective. Yeah, that's gonna be great. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, real quick, uh, to finish up with uh, Predicted, uh, Barstool Politics listeners uh, who use the promo link when opening up a new account uh, will receive up to a twenty dollars match on their first deposit. So open up a twenty dollars account. Predicted will match that twenty dollars, giving you forty dollars to use. Just use the promo link predicted.org/promo/barstoolpol20 uh, and check it out. Definitely before the debates. Absolutely. Swallow all the way. <laughs> before, after, and during. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's just do cocked and loaded because all it's right. so good. It and is. I really, I'm itching for a new war. It's right. going to be fun. So some pretty dramatic developments in the already volatile situation between the United States and Iran. On Thursday, Iran shot down a $130 million U.S. drone. By later that evening, President Trump said he was cocked and loaded for a military strike against Iran, but then called the attack off with 10 minutes to spare when a general told him that 150 people would probably die in the attack. Apparently, that was not mentioned. According to him, that's why he called it off. (laughs) Right. Right. They didn't didn't inform of that till late. Um, So in a series of tweets Friday morning, Trump said he pulled back uh, because the death of that many Iranians would not be proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. Uh, on Tuesday, he posted thirty million dollars. Uh, that's expensive. Oh, yeah. yeah. On Tuesday, he posted another set of tweets attacking the regime. In one, he stated, "Quote: Any attack by Iran on anything American will be met with great and overwhelming force. In somewhere, in some areas, overwhelming will mean obliteration." <laughs> and then he finishes with, "No more John Kerry and Obama." I don't. I don't know what that means. Just an aside. All right. Yeah. <laughs> this sort of this on again, off again episode was yet another chaotic moment on the world stage for a president. President whose credibility is already strained. Nevertheless, the New York Times reported that a person familiar with Mr. Trump's thinking said that Trump was quite pleased with his handling of the events because he looked like or he liked the command of approving the strike, but also liked the decisiveness of calling it off. <laughs> Phil, I think most in the international security community were relieved with Trump's decision not to escalate, but they were equally troubled by the erratic nature of the decision. Some are saying Trump Trump speaks loudly but carries a little stick. Uh, what's your assessment of all this incident and everything that's transpired? And again, there's more stuff even breaking today, too. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the speaks loudly but carries a little stick is a little bit like, what What was it at the beginning of his presidency where you were supposed to take him take him seriously but not literally? Or was it you're supposed to take him literally but not seriously? I One of the two. I'm seriously confused. but not literally. Not literally, one. yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm torn on this. I, I'm kind of curious to... to I'm looking forward to talking about this because I'm, I'm interested in your take. Um, I, I, on one hand, I, I don't want there, there was a, there's a tendency to critique him or to say he's, you know, he is erratic or whatever for calling this off at the last minute. I, I'm glad he did. Right. So, I mean, I think the idea of, of reconsidering something, if he got new information, reconsidering it. Uh, and stopping it and and you know the I I agree with his you know if it's going to kill 150 people that's not proportionate to the response that you're you're wanting to make um so you know that is all praiseworthy I think um the problem is that that though that sort of logic should have gone into the decision in the first place right so those sorts of things should have been considered before the strike was ordered um, and and if you if you do this, the other part that I have a problem with is ordering the strike and then calling it off is one thing, but Trump can't help but praise himself. So he has to go out and talk about how this decision was made, how the strike was ordered, and then he called it off at the last minute because he wants that praise. But by putting that out there, that is advertising to the world the the level of either 
um, the the erratic nature of him, or it sends this message of um, well that that you know he's he's weak or he's going to back down or whatever. So if if that had just never even you know it should just never have been disclosed that the strike was ordered, you know make a press release, give a speech that says if something like this happens again we will attack or or whatever. But to go out and say we were on our way and then at the last minute we changed our mind and called it off, that's where you start to call into question or that, that's where it leaves other international actors who are trying to understand the U.S., trying to understand U.S. policy, trying to make decisions accordingly. It leaves them confused. And we've talked a lot about the possibility of misperceptions and, and miscommunications and errors. And so that's the part that I that I that I'm troubled by. I'm not necessarily troubled by the final decision to call it off. I'm just troubled by. The, the the fact that this seems to shed a light on the fact that there's not an underlying policy. It's just kind of, you know, whatever he's feeling like at a given moment, whoever talked to him last. Um, and then I don't, you know, the the sort of political, I, I, I understand that he, there is an advantage to going public with the, you know, we are prepared to strike, right? You're, that's a, you want a credible threat. But doing it in this way actually undermines yeah. the credibility of the threat. So uh, mm -hmm. anyway, I, tell me which way I should feel about it. I, I mean, I, I think this is this is his doctrine. We've kind of seen it evolve over the past two years. He doesn't necessarily think of the the overall ramifications of what he says or the strategic implications of putting something like this out there. He has a singular focus, whether we're talking about Iran or North Korea or immigration or anything else um, that's that's on the docket for the day, and he hammers that in the most. Um, New York businessman way that yes, he can. Yes, he does this to bring people to the negotiating table. We saw it with North Korea. We're seeing it now with the ICE raids, and he's done it with Iran. I think this is his attempt to say you're so close to the edge right now, but I'm bigger than that, and I pulled us back. So you need to reciprocate and come to the table and be reasonable instead of, you know, doing what you're doing right now. I, that's a, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm just, I'm wondering whether, is he doing it because he wants to bring people to the table, which would be a good thing, mm -hmm. or because he likes the attention of it? And I'm not sure, right? Two things can be true. Well, that's right. Because uh, I don't know if he can, you're right, he does do these awkward outreaches, because uh, last, uh, I guess over the weekend, he was talking about how we're going to make Iran great, and Iran is going to be all this, you know, amazing developed country. It was awkward where he does this outreach at the same time he's he's condemning and then he's talking about total obliteration. Mm -hmm. It's just all over the place. I, I mean, I, I think you you kind of alluded to it, Phil, that information like this, that 150 people were going to be killed, that is not information that just comes out of nowhere. Like he right. nudges the general to the left and we go, so is that, yeah, like 150 people, and he hits a, a, an abort button right next to him. Sorry, I'm hitting the table. Um, no, I, I, I have no doubt that that conversation did not take place and that they gave him information on potential casualties beforehand, and right. he's using this to color the issue in a way that's more beneficial to him. It makes this him is look a negotiation tactic. Yeah. Why do you think he did change his mind? I, it doesn't see because that seems like... I don't think he did. I, I, it's, a, it's a possibility that he just hadn't thought about casualties, and at the last minute when it was pointed out to him, it bothered him. Uh, but it's also the possibility that there's lots of other things that came into play. I think he likes being decisive. I think he likes being the decider. But he, at the same time, there's only one decider. <laughs> this is true. Mm -hmm. He he doesn't want to to engage. In some ways, he he does carry a little stick. He's all talk and no action. Right. 
And some of that is maybe strategic because he doesn't want to get the United States dragged down in another Middle Eastern conflict. But he loves the attack. Same thing with North Korea, as you noted. He loves that that big rhetoric. But then when it comes down to it, he's not willing to follow through. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be signaling to other countries around the world where they see this pattern and they know that they can push. I think Iran knows they can push. They're trying to feel out how far... Uh, how many of these little episodes can they carry out before Trump will respond? I think they're running out of room, though. Their mm-hmm. oil exports are effectively at zero at this point. There's nothing, almost nothing left to um, sanction yeah. in, in Iran. They're, they're, they're hamstrung. Their economy is in shambles. And I really, I think it's just you're thinking about this too much. I, the only reason I say that is, uh, again, kind of going back to the ice raids that were supposed to happen over the weekend. Right, another example, yeah. And he decided to call that off at the last minute. And his whole thing was to get the Democrats to say, you have two weeks now to talk to the Republicans and stop holding up uh, potential immigration fixes or legislation uh, to get pushed through for the border crisis. Mm-hmm. That was his only, I think that was his only reason for doing it, is to have some sort of chip on the table where he could point to something and say, I did this, so you need to do your jobs and reciprocate in some fashion. But if it's, yeah, it's got to be a credible threat. It makes me think of right, parents. That's the problem. Uh, like, you know, parents, and I'm oftentimes guilty of this. If you say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to punish the kid, I'm going to punish you, don't do that again, you'll, there's going to be punishment, and you never follow through, they quickly learn that they can continue to do this. And I wonder whether others in the system are learning that if he, he's not going to follow through. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. Th- I mean. I think he. The, he. He. Because this is his mo. There have been lots of times that he's done this sort of thing, and I, I think you're right, Nick. I think he's. He's. You know, trying to increase his bargaining position, but it, there does have to be at some point some follow through if course. people are going to continue to believe that. And I. That's why. Yeah. I think maybe you're right that. I, I don't. You know. I don't. I don't know that. Well, this is where you get back to the miscommunication or the dangers of it, right? Is he serious? Is he prepared to actually lead a military strike, a possible military intervention in Iran? And we sit around the table, and I don't think any of us know. And that that's, in some ways, I you know, I don't want someone who is just pro-war all the time. And, you know, there's sometimes, you, there's, certainly there are times that, that the use of force is necessary. But we're at this place where it's you don't know with him. I don't know where he is. And that makes, you know, if you're Iran, how far can you push it? It becomes this guessing game that's potentially dangerous. And is there options, right? So so today Trump announced another round of sanctions, which as Nick pointed out, right, there's there's only so much you can sanction. I think we sanctioned the foreign minister now, right? Here. Yeah, they're going after individuals. <laughs> right. So mm-hmm. so the one guy who you could engage in diplomacy with we're sanctioning and not allowing him to try all these sort of things. So is is diplomacy even really an option? I mean Iran came out and said today that they called him mentally deranged and said that you know there's there's no way you can have diplomacy with the regime that is you know the united states that's doing this so i I don't know where we go from here Mm -hmm. is there any way out of this uh short of some sort of military minor you know confrontation i i I don't know you you just can't nobody's going to sit around the table anymore iran is angry and upset uh, I don't think the United States is genuinely interested in negotiation. I, I just, I'm not sure how this ends. I, I don't know. I, I, I think this is a unique situation, and this is probably the closest that we've come to an actual confrontation when yeah. this sort of methodology has been put in place. 
most of the other uh, examples, North Korea has come to the table. Mexico has, you know, sent, uh, I think it's another 15,000 troops to their southern border. Um, you know, I, I will see what the Democrats do, but they're not exactly a military power. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would bet we see some sort of diplomatic shift in the next week or two in a positive direction. That would be my guess. Then the other question is, are we better off now than we were, what, three years ago when the Iran nuclear accord was in place? And Iran, like, uh, what, in a couple days, Iran will have uh, breached the the regulations of the Iran nuclear accord. They will mm-hmm. be enriching at a higher level. Are we better off now than we were under that, even if it was a, a flawed agreement? I'm not so sure we're in a better place now. This this is much more precarious. What do you think, Phil? I mean, are we, are we better, better suited than we were in the latter years of the Obama administration under the Iran nuclear accord? Um, so, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if I can speak confidently to that. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of our relationship with Iran directly, no, I think we're in a worse situation. Um, in terms of Iran's role in the Middle East or the world, I, that's the part I don't know. I don't know if, you know, this has had an impact on how they how they do things. I, the part that, that for me is the, is the unknown in all of this. So I, I look back the parallels with this and North Korea. Mm-hmm. And with North Korea, um, Kim Jong-un and and Donald Trump both stood to benefit by going through this dance, right? The, the escalation and then the, hey, let's come together and negotiate something. Um, and, and the question for me is, does Iran see it the same way, right? Because Iran could see, hey, we're going to push back and forth, we're going to escalate, and then we'll come to the table and come up with some conclusion. And, you know, Donald Trump can go back and claim victory and Iran can go back and claim some victory. Yep. But I don't I'm not sure in the Iran situation where you have a more extremist type leadership, whether that actually benefits them or suits them or whether antagonizing the U.S., not negotiating with them, but antagonizing with them, antagonizing the U.S. is more beneficial to them. And so that's where I don't that's where I don't know how they're going to play their cards. Right. Do they do they play the game right of like escalating this and then backing down? Or do they play the game of escalating it and backing down doesn't actually look good for them, so they continue to push it? I, I mean, I would think that, you know, that's been their M.O. For, for decades at this point is to continue to, you know, poke the bear. But they're at a point where, whether um, purposefully or not, they have no more allies. They pretty much alienated all of Europe with the nuclear deal because they're not going to side with Iran over the U.S. for fear of economic sanctions. Uh India, which was technically a, a big uh, oil importer from Iran, can't do that anymore uh, because, again, for for econo- uh, economic reasons and, and and relations to the the U.S., I, I don't I don't think they have anyone in their corner anymore necessarily, or no one big enough to take on the global economic system that is headed by the U.S. That's right. I, I they have to negotiate in some way. And, you know, if this was a couple years ago and we were talking about Rouhani coming into power, it would be about its progressivism and things are changing and he wants to negotiate and, and open up to the West. I, like, I think that's still there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of curious how the maximum pressure doctrine kind of works out for right. this. Because these are issues that needed to be addressed at some point. This probably isn't the best way to do it, but the strategic patience bullshit wasn't working either because it got us realistically into the situation. You set up a situation where a future administration 
could do exactly what the Trump administration is doing. So regardless of their tact and how you think that they're handling it, this needs to be dealt with. And and I, I don't know. I, this is an option that we haven't seen previously. I think that the comparison between Iran and North Korea is really interesting. When I think about North Korea, they had something to gain by going to the table. So previous U.S. administrations never let North Korea to the negotiating table. So just having that meeting with Trump was symbolic. It was important. And- and it happened at a time that North Korea had crossed the nuclear threshold, so they had right. achieved what they wanted to achieve. That's right. Iran is already at the table, right? So Iran was part of an agreement. They had this deal. If I'm Iran and I say, we had a, we had a deal that everybody agreed with, and while you're right, Nick, that Europe is going to side with the United States, Europe is more pissed at the United States now how we've handled the Iran nuclear accord than they are at Iran, right? Iran held up their end of the bargain. So I don't know if Iran wants to get back to the table again, because they've been there. They had a deal, and the United States reneged on that deal. So uh, what interest do they have in negotiating again, right? Do you, do you just, is this like uh, NAFTA, where Trump gets, you know, Iran 2.0, like a slightly different, but basically the same deal. Everyone signs on and they say, that's great. Or does Iran say, no, we're not going to play that game anymore. I, I, I don't know. We're, we have to think about what's the motivation of this regime now. I, I mean, I think they're in a, a a significantly more precarious position than than even North Korea was. I, I mean, you think of North Korea; they have technically China is backing them and some sort of relative stability in the region. You know, if if Iran goes the way that they're going, you also have Israel to contend with, and they are not going to put up with any of their bullshit, mm-hmm. um, especially if they start enriching weapons grade uranium um, on top of the other, you know half a million messes that are currently sure. ongoing in the Middle East. I, I don't I, I don't know. I don't they're I, in my opinion, they're not coming from a position of, of strength. I think North Korea had a, a better they had a better case for for negotiation and, and potential long term benefit. Um, and Iran just doesn't seem to be playing by that. And I understand the history of, of, of what they've gone through and their relationship with the U.S., but this is not something that's going to end well for anyone. If it's not the U.S., Israel is sure as shit going to take care of the problem. The thing is, though, Iran can still make the U.S.'s life very, very difficult, right? Whether we're t- not just the United States, but anybody who's coming through the Straits of Hormuz, right? They can they can cause problems. Uh, and Trump, I was just looking for this, Trump was tweeting about this. So he was mm-hmm. talking about... Uh, uh, talking about China gets 90% of its oil through the strait. Uh, so why are we protecting the shipping lanes for other countries for zero compensation? All of these countries should be protecting their own ships on what has always been a dangerous journey. I mean, that, that signals to me that Trump is at least thinking about why are we even, why are we here? I, w- I would agree. But yeah. if it's between um, not paying for it or not getting any global trade going through the strait, mm-hmm. I think the latter of the two is going to win out. He'll, he's going to protect global economic and realistically U.S. economic interests in that situation. Thirty percent of the world uh, of the world's uh, 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 trade goes through the strait. It's impossible to not protect it. Yeah, it just feels like there could be in one of these interactions one thing that flares yeah. and then it spirals sure. out of control. I, I keep thinking about I, I, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Fog of War, the Robert McNamara yeah. documentary, and mm-hmm. he talks about in that how important it is. 
um, to put yourself in the shoes of the of the enemy of the person you're you're dealing with. I think he he talks about that. I think in regards to Russia, maybe with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Um. And I, and I so I think about that here. I'm not a big like rational choice. Like ra- you know, rationality always explains everything. It's not my go-to way of thinking about the world. But I can't help but think a little bit about it here. It, this is not to say that I sympathize with the Iranian regime, but if I put myself in their shoes, I, I think about what is it that Trump or the U.S. or the Trump administration or whoever wants from them in this moment. And it feels like the thing that the U.S. wants or that the Trump administration wants from Iran is regime change, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, if you're the Iranian, you know, from a rational choice perspective, if you are the Iranian regime, there is no negotiation left, right? I mean, it is life or death, all-out survival at this point. And so at this point, war you know, is, is, it might be terrible. You might be, you know, that you're going to lose in a war with the U S but you know, why not fight if you're going to, if the choice is to, you know, collapse your regime to commit political suicide by giving into the U S or go to war then. And so that doesn't, I I just, that's what brings me that, but that's what worries me thinking about that, that we haven't, we're not giving them I don't know what the out options are for them at this point. Like, what is the the way that we are? What is it that we're presenting to Iran that says, "Hey, do this," and and we'll be a, we may not be 100% happy, but you know, we'll be appeased in some way. And I don't I don't see that, which is what makes me worry that we're on this track inevitably towards some sort of conflict. I think that's right, and, and you hear this coming out of Europe right now. I think Europe looks at how the United States has handled Iran and says, "You're being unreasonable." Right, we have this agreement. You withdraw from the agreement. You put in, you put sanctions back on the regime, but tell Iran you still have to comply with the regime. Um, yeah, it just it, it doesn't seem like a reasonable option for having some nonviolent solution. And that that's my fear in all of this is that the hardliners in Iran will say, to your point, this isn't worth it. We we gave Rouhani and all these moderates their chance to negotiate with the United States. The United States was not a fair partner. Let's go back to causing trouble, which ultimately could be a real problem for the United States and the region and Israel and Saudi Arabia and all of that. And and hopefully it doesn't come to that. But, you know, and it becomes, you're playing with fire. It becomes self-fulfilling at that point. Yes. Right? If you give them no option except for the sort of military force option, then the the story that you're telling of iran being you know they're not willing to negotiate or that they are militaristic um becomes you know that becomes the outcome yeah um i don't know that you know i don't i i don't know the good (laughs) the right solution to it um it's just it feels like this kind of train that's on you know headed down the track in a in a way that seems I don't know. I worry about the inevitable destination if we're not careful. So, I mean, realistically, <clears throat> just kind of thinking abstractly, what would be, in in your opinions, like a, a good route to deal with Iran? Because real, mm-hmm. I think everyone is in agreement that Iran, as it functions today, is not beneficial to the world order. So what is the best way to either bring them into the fold or negate the current regime as it exists today. In in your opinions, what would that look like? It depends on whether you're thinking about from an international perspective or from the United States perspective. If I'm the United States, I say the biggest threat Iran poses is nuclear weapons. And so that's why I thought walking away from the nuclear accord was a terrible decision. You know, their behavior in uh, Yemen, uh, in you know Syria, all of that, that's problematic, but that's more minor stuff, right? Um, it's not good, but it doesn't 
it doesn't pose an existential threat to the United States. For me, in terms of U.S. interests, exactly yeah. U.S. interests. The, the the nuclear issue is the biggest issue, and all of the other ones are like important, but much much lower down. Really? Yeah, that, that's what I would say. Right in terms of the actual threat, Iran is a, a a minor power. You know, they're they're trouble in the Middle East, but so is Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, that's they're sure. all. So I would say I I am less concerned from a U.S. perspective about anything other than the potential to get a nuclear weapon. No. What about from an, you say from an international, so international perspective, to an international perspective, then you have all of these, you know, instability yes. in the Middle East and human yep. rights issues and all sorts of other things that yeah. come into it as well. Mm -hmm. So wh how, how would you change it if you were looking at it that way? Well, I still think that the approach of starting with the nuclear issue first, right? So you, you make Iran feel like they're not going to be attacked by the United States or the international community. And then you, you slowly and patiently work out from that. You, you start dealing with the missile issue. You start dealing with Israel. I mean, those are hard issues. Uh, but I think for me, the, the only one that really, really matters is Iran getting a nuclear weapon. The, the rest of it all is sort of more minor stuff. Is there an analogy to China in this all? I, as you're talking, I think yeah. about how we've handled other countries in U.S. foreign policy. So, I, you know, I, having just taught this U.S. foreign policy class and I read a book on the Korean War this, this semester, um, I, I think about, you know, China uh, for, you know, the most of the 20th century, not not a great proponent of human rights, right? <laughs> pretty awful, right? Still not real great at right. No, still, no. Um, still working. <laughs> meddling in regional politics, yeah. right? So intervening, like meddling in the Korean War and Vietnam. Like, I mean, it's they've they've you know had their fingers in Taiwan. They're 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 you know they're not uh, uh, on the U.S. side and sort of in terms of stability and peace and whatnot. But we've largely. I mean, we've engaged where necessary in, you know, Korea and whatnot, but never really directly with them. We've had this long term approach, you know, slowly we've engaged over time. The idea of of um, of uh, why can't I think of the what was the term that that Nixon used um, engagement um, detente? Well, no, I was thinking of maybe it was anyway. Um, the the idea though though was over time you sort of bring them in by incorporating them into the international system and right. and you know and you know we could argue that that's not worked well for China you could argue in other ways that it has worked right but it, regardless it's a very different approach and so it seems like we're really worked up about Iran in ways that we've. You know, we've been critical of China, but have largely, and I know that's a power mm -hmm. imbalance, right? China yeah. was more powerful, and so we couldn't challenge them in the same way. But we seemed comfortable allowing, you know, critiquing China where necessary, pushing back where necessary, but never like this high tension, you know, threat of war all the time sort of thing. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, there's part of me that kind of wonders why we don't take that approach. Why don't we take sort of this more low level, we're going to push back, we're going to critique, we're going to challenge them whenever necessary. But, you know, assuming they're, you know, doing crap in the in their region, we'll critique that, but we're not going to constantly be on the edge of war with them. Mm -hmm. um, is it just a power difference? Is that why we've handled one differently than the other? That would Probably. be my, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I, think I mean, so. yeah. the, 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 you know, separating the, the global economic order out of that, if we <clears throat> attacked China or vice versa, I mean, the, the world order is in shambles yeah. at that point. The global economy so, collapses and it's, it's, you know, it's a free for all. Is, is that an argument then for if China, if the reason we haven't engaged with China is that they are a much bigger threat than Iran? Then that seems like an argument that why are we worked up about yes, Iran? Yes. If, if China's threat is even bigger, but that's not enough to get us worked up into this level of war. Why are we getting that worked up? 
about Iran. I, I agree. I think, I think we can. <laughs> well, to me, Iran is a toothache, right? And it's annoying. It's kind of a pain in the butt. But it's it's not something that you focus all of your attention on. Uh, and, and it feels like we're obsessing on Iran right now, which isn't to say their behavior is good. And if they were to develop a nuclear weapon, then they become a much, much bigger issue. That's why, for me, the Iran nuclear accord was, was so important because it, it, for the moment, tabled that one issue. Uh, and the rest of it is just sort of minor toothache stuff. You're saying minor toothache yeah. stuff, yeah. but uh, there hasn't been a nuclear issue in the Middle East. There's been a lot of humanitarian mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and general, you know, terrorist and military issues in the Middle East. None of it caused by nuclear weapons. Maybe the threat of nuclear weapons, but it's all very, you know, surface level, ground level stuff that has caused all of the instability. None of that has anything to do with a nuclear weapon being detonated or somebody having sure. a nuclear weapon. I, I, and I know we've talked about this before. I still firmly, firmly believe that the biggest threat in the Middle East is not a nuclear weapon. If anything, again, talked about it previously, it's mutually assured destruction. If you have it, it's a stabilizing force, which is probably what they're thinking the same way that North Korea thinks about it. But I, I just, I, I think there are elements within the Trump administration that have just an axe to grind with Iran, which, again, we've talked about previously, but like something has to be done. Some of this just needs to be finalized. There needs to be some sort of stability. And if that means a military intervention, I think elements within the administration are going to take sure. it. And is, we'll see what maximum pressure does, but I... I I, I don't know. Something yeah. needs to be. Done. Well, what's, I, I'm not. I don't disagree with you at all on that. I think. But what's fascinating Why you for question me? Question me on everything I say, Bill. <laughs> no, I think I think you're right there. I would I would add that, and we'll talk about Saudi Arabia in speed round. But you know, the three central actors there are Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, and all of them bear some culpability for what's going on there. And, sure. And we focus a lot of attention on Iran, but Saudi Arabia is just oh, they're terrible, terrible oh, people. Yeah. But their and, oil is fantastic. Exactly. And Israel's equally problematic in terms of their. So it, it's yeah. Uh, we should do an episode just on the Middle East. That would be fun. Yeah, that would yeah. that would be interesting. We, we, should, we could get some Middle East expert on here. That'd be good. No, just the three white just guys. The, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Well, we should talk beer. <laughs> yes. uh, Phil, what are you enjoying? So I'm drinking a uh, a beer from Harpoon. Um, it's called Rec League. It's one of their seasonal offerings. Um, I I didn't know really what to think of this when I picked it up. It's just it doesn't say what it is. It doesn't describe it as a pale ale or anything. It just describes it as hoppy, hazy, and light. And so I thought, well, this will be great. Um, I wanted you know I wanted something just kind of refreshing. And so uh, I when I first started drinking this, it, I would look it up. It's a pale ale. Um, it comes out. It's real hazy. It's real. It's pretty hoppy. It's mm -hmm. citrusy. It's got all the kind of pale ale stuff to Sounds it. Good. And when I first yeah, when I first started drinking it, I thought, ah, I, I don't know. Like, if I wanted a, an IPA, I'd get an IPA. Um, and uh, but as I've gone further into it, I I like it. It's it's only like three point eight percent alcohol, so it's not at That's all heavy. Low. Yeah, it's real low. Um, and so you can drink. Like I'm I'm a pint in, and I just feel. I just feel nice. Like, that's good. <laughs> you know, sometimes you drink like a double IPA yeah, and you get yeah. the hoppiness. And by the time you finish with one, you're like, oh, I'm going to regret this. Yeah. Um, this is great. It's, you know, I, I don't know that it would go, you know, in my Hall of Fame of beers. But, um, yeah, I'd pick this up again, especially for, you know, a hot summer day when you just want something kind of light and refreshing. That's good. Sounds like a good one. Nick, nice. Nick what are we drinking? We are having a, a sunny pale ale from, um, uh, oh, no, it's a Brooklyn summer ale. 
uh, from Brooklyn Brewing. Yeah. Is that what it is? Brooklyn Brand Brewing? I don't know. Yeah. Brooklyn Brand. I don't know. Something with Brooklyn in it. Yeah. From uh, from New York. The of Bro- all places. The Brooklyn Brewery. The Brooklyn Brewery. Whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's... Um, all the things Phil said, this was not. It was not yeah. that. No. It's, it's also a pale ale. You just expect, you know, summer ales or anything related to summer to kind of have that... Um, like I almost expected to have like a citrusy bite mm-hmm. to it, <clears throat> or something kind of more pronounced and uh, bright and almost yes. floral. Yeah, and it just doesn't have that. It it's terrible. like a slightly better <laughs> like Coors Light. That's what I was thinking. Like I was going to go Miller Light, but same. We're on the Either same way. Like, yep, yep. The, yeah, <laughs> it, just, it it there was just nothing that defined it. It, it was, was just kind of there. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it was not a particularly compelling beer. I yeah. I was I was excited because summer beers usually are good. Like you said, there's something that kind of lightens up the the space and the mood. And this was no. This no, was no good. it was not there. So you don't recommend it? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Try better. Try harder, Brooklyn. Try harder. Um, <clears throat> Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, if you guys want to check out all the beers that we try, uh, download Untapped on iOS or Android. Um, look for Barstool Politics on there, and you will find all of our reviews. Speed round. Speed rounds. All right. So the issue of student debt has become a prominent topic within the Democratic primary. Primary, as nearly right. all of you, yeah, all of the candidates have proposed some version of a plan for making college more affordable. On Monday, Monday, Bernie Sanders unveiled arguably the most bold plan for reducing student debt. Uh, Sanders' version goes much further than the other Democratic candidates and calls for canceling all of the roughly $1.6 trillion in outstanding student loan debt in the United States. Only half of that is mine. What? <laughs> $1.6 trillion. Well, you're the other guy. God, we were talking about this before the before we went on air. That's a, that's a huge number. Uh, there are a variety of more or less aggressive plans being embraced by the Democratic contenders. Elizabeth Warren has proposed canceling $640 billion of the debt. Others call for making public college free for lower-income people. Uh, the top topic is pretty fascinating, one that it seems to divide by age. Those who are younger and feel saddled by their debt are excited by the proposals. On the other side, those who are old, like Phil and I, uh, detest the idea that these young whippersnappers are getting a break in their debt. <laughs> Phil, even though you're younger than me, you're super old. So what's your read on all of this? <laughs> Um, you know, I, this is I, I find this a really interesting um, debate, and yeah. this feels to me like uh, it, this feels to me like an issue that is a winning issue for Democrats that they are not approaching correctly. Hmm. So th- I mean, this is you know we've talked about this before about the importance of making an argument. So uh, there's you know 1.6 trillion dollars is a huge amount of money, right? But I, I went and looked today um, to to kind of put it into perspective. The um, the the bank bailout the tarp yeah. um, that happened whenever that was that's been ten years ago or whatever was seven hundred billion dollars so you know it's that's not quite half um, but that was the sort of thing where it was seen as it was it was controversial but the argument was this was essential to the economy that the the economic hit that would come from losing you know from GM and other car, car companies going out of business it wasn't just the automakers, it was the dealers, it was the people who made the parts, it was all of the stuff that that was a, an, an essential part of our economy. The other one that I, look, I thought of was the tax cut that just passed, right? Um, the estimate, estimation of how much that's going to add to the national debt over the next 10 years is $2.2 trillion. So in the next 10 wow. years, it's going to add more than the cost of $1.6 trillion. That doesn't mean that people have to agree with canceling it all out. But what I don't hear 
are are the arguments you know there's this tendency to make sort of the kind of moral or ethical arguments without necessarily focusing in on the kind of why this is good for you like mm -hmm. you don't have economic you don't have college debt but here's why it would benefit you to do this um you know the arguments about i i don't particularly i don't agree with the logic that was used for the tax cuts but the arguments that were made about cutting taxes means more money to spend which means higher revenue and a growing economy and it pays for itself you know make those sorts of arguments that's that by free by 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 um, doing away with this debt that's that much more money that young professionals have to spend to buy houses you know to push the value of housing up mm -hmm. to buy cars to buy stuff like that actually helps the economy as a whole and i don't i don't see those sorts of arguments being made the other part of this that i think is interesting is that for the older younger thing i i don't i'm not super convinced by people who you know say you know people who are our age or older who are saying, you know, I went through college and I did this or I, I had debt and I had to pay it off or I paid for college, partly because, um, well, one, if you went through a shitty system, um, the idea of basically other people should be subjected to that same shitty system <laughs> because I was, is, it just seems, it seems kind of crappy. Mm -hmm. The other one is that we talked a little bit before we came on, the system has changed, yeah. right? Like when I went through college, my parents, you know, my parents weren't, wealthy but they were able to pay for a public you know i had some i had some scholarship money and my parents were able to pay for my tuition because it was you know a few thousand dollars a year or whatever it's it wasn't the case like, anymore yeah it's yeah. just massive now the the mm -hmm. cost so anyway i those are my kind of two thoughts on it it really is an interesting thing when you when you think about it, that you're young so nick is younger but your group it's harder <laughs> there's so many people talk about being unable to buy homes right because i would be of, one of them yeah right i mean that's mm -hmm. that's a that's a real cost yeah yeah go uh, nick I, uh, <laughs> uh, I love this topic yeah so uh, the the specifics of this and I, I i read this earlier today if you go to elizabeth warren's website she's a calculator of you put in what your uh, student debt is your total student debt and how much you make on a yearly basis uh, and it gives you uh, a readout of how much you could potentially be forgiven. And I think the thing is, it was a maximum of $50,000 for people making under $100,000 a year. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, you know, 250000 anybody below that, it's a, a smaller fraction. Anybody above that mark, none of it gets sure. um, yeah. done. Bernie also has a calculator where you put those same factors in, and whatever number you put in, it's zero. It just says all of it. It just says all of it. All that's, gone. That's yeah. pretty good. It just puts the, the Oprah meme up. You get student debt forgiveness. So he really has, he has a calculator on there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, has he said... Has he said how he'll pay for it? So, I mean, at least with Elizabeth Warren has said, this is how I'll pay for yeah. it, whether that's possible, whether you agree with it or not. Yeah, so it's uh, two differences between the two. His uh, his primary source was uh, taxing um, uh, large business transactions. Bonds, right, 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 right. Yeah, and then Elizabeth Warren was raising it on... Um, wealth uh, tax. Wealth, wealth yeah. tax. Individual, yeah, wealth. Um, again... Bernie's makes absolutely no sense. I don't know how you forgive $1.6 trillion and think that that's going to be, I get why it could potentially be a benefit to the US economy and people having more money, but you've now negated a huge amount of money that the industry, that the, the um, financial aid industry was going to make interest on, sure. that they were expecting to make interest on. $1.6 billion. That's bigger tr than the housing trillion, price. Trillion. I'm sorry. Yeah, trillion dollars. I, I can't even get it through my fucking head at this point. <laughs> Trust me, I would love to have all of my student loan debt forgiven tomorrow. I could, it, it would change things fundamentally. But then you negate mm -hmm. 
what people not older generations were again you were paying somewhere like oh. 10 grand a year or so, or a semester as a percent, it's nothing as a per, right it's nothing yeah. where people are paying 50 60,000 for degrees that they're never going to use um it's it's not it's not it doesn't it doesn't make sense i get it the system needs to be more it needs to be fair yeah. in the sense of it can't you can't hamstring people for life, but you also can't just say that it's free. Yeah. You negate the the purpose of having a higher education at, at some point. If everybody can just do it, and you're a generation that told us everybody should do it. There, there is nobody that I know that thought otherwise that they should do anything other than college. And the only time that they didn't go to college was after they flunked out of college and did something else. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 a horrible thing. And it needs to be fixed, but these are not policies that are going to fix that. As I was listening to both of you, I was struck that I think Republicans could sell this, right? They don't want yep. to, but a Republican yep. could come out and say, could make that argument. And they've done that. They've done a good job of arguing for tax cuts and other things that they could sell this debt. Not going to happen. The other thing, <laughs> to flip it a little bit, I know we need to move on, is it's not just the debt issue, but it's also this issue of free college. That's a whole nother conversation that some, some of these Democratic candidates are pushing. For me, that's a bit more complicated, how you do that. And we could spend a lot of time talking about how Europe does it. And and in Europe, it's a mixed bag, right? The reality is that institutions and, and universities in Europe are not the same as they are in the United States. Our college students are pampered in that way in terms of dorms are fancy, lots of administrators. It's a, it's a much more enjoyable experience, a fancier experience to go in the United States than in in uh, in Europe, the college professors are paid more here, even though we're not, we're not paid a lot. It's 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 a different thing. Like all of these would be real issues we would have to grapple with if we were going to move in that direction. Now, I think a goal should be to try to get more Americans, especially low income Americans, into college. But these are these are hard conversations. I, I think <clears throat> you can get more people into college. That's fine. Get more people into the education system, but you also need to start making the point that you don't need to go to college. There are other options yeah. where you're not settled with this debt, and you could make significantly more in yes. a trade or something that is not going to saddle you with tens or hundreds of thousands right. of dollars of debt. You've created a generation where you have an entire industry built around people going to college. It's it's insane to me. Uh, like yeah. I, there's and, not everybody should go. You everybody should not it, it's it, it's just unnecessary. I, Some people yeah. are better and, at doing and, other things. And that's something that Europe does do better than right. us, which yes. is to sort of put people on pathways earlier in their, you know, career towards you know whether you're going to into higher education or trade school or that that sort of thing. That's yeah. an important point. No, the only, I know we need to move on, but the only thing, other thing I would say is we do want to be careful that going to college doesn't become something that only you know very affluent people do, and that's the one downside. I think you're absolutely right, Nick. You don't want to saddle people with debt. You want to find a way where college is is, is fair, though, right? Uh, of course. And, and it's I, I don't think it is right now. It's, it's so that's. But I don't know how you get there. I, I mean, it, what it's changed? What the the cost of tuition has increased something like a what two hundred percent over the past 15, 20 years? I mean, it's 15, crazy. 20 years. Yeah, it's unbelievable. The difference between when you went to college and when Phil and I went to college—it's startling. Same thing. We, you know, my yeah. parents could could basically pay for college as we went along and didn't really have to take out many loans. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the case anymore. No. Everybody is saddled with debt. 
Yeah. yeah. So your friends or people who who are older that that oh, think like that, they're, they're mad. Yeah, they yeah. can go screw themselves. That's a that's a good way to end. Yeah. All right, <laughs> let's go international. All right, a UN investigation into the brutal slaying of Jamal Khashoggi was released on Wednesday and provides the clearest picture yet of the journalist's final moments and the culpability of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The months-long investigation by Agnes Kalamard, a human rights expert at the United Nations, was definitive that Khashoggi's death was a, quote, extrajudicial killing for which the state of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is responsible. The UN report urged the U.S. to launch an FBI investigation. Yet on Sunday, President Trump shrugged off the brutal dismembering of Khashoggi and said on an interview on Meet the Press that the episode had already been thoroughly investigated and that the Middle East is a vicious, hostile place. God. Uh, instead of criticizing Saudi Arabia, Trump reminded everyone that they are major, a major trading partner who have spent over $400 billion. Trump noted, quote, I am not like a fool that says we don't want to do business with them. And by the way, if they don't do business with us, you know what they'll do? They'll do business with the Russians or with the Chinese. Uh, Phil, last week we talked about Trump, the Trump administration's plans to undergo some fresh thinking on human rights. Uh, do you think this is what they meant? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. I mean, it's an interesting contrast, right? So we talked last week about the shift in human rights and the focus on natural rights and whatnot. I, I mean, this is this is the tension that you have in the Trump White House because you have the the people, you know, the, the Trumps of the of the administration who don't. I, there's there's no underlying like human rights moral compass that's like guiding it. I don't think, um, which is in sharp contrast to you know some of the more kind of religious right and the traditional um, conservatives. And what's weird is to see both of those kind of coming out in their own in their own ways. I mean, this is like this is a really interesting glimpse into the mind of Donald Trump. I think. I, I mean, this is this is uh, it captures what I imagine to be. You know, th this is a, a telling representation of how he thinks about things. Um, he, you know, he might have moral, uh, you know, principles that that he bases decisions on, but um, really? if he can really? make money, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, we've got to wait till I get the butt. Out. Okay. <laughs> uh, but you know, if he can make money off of it, those things go out the window, mm. right? Like making money is the is the top priority, and so if if you know they they might be terrible, but we're going to make four hundred billion dollars in dealing with them, and so I'm not going to worry about the terrible part of it. And it's also the part that we've seen in foreign policy in other ways, in which if they're nice to me, then I'm willing to kind of forgive all the other stuff that they do, where they're not nice to other people, right? The 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 nice to Trump is the is the Trump card for the for the administration. I mean, the, the fact that the whole world is, is essentially not the whole world, you know, all the credible world is basically saying this is what happened. Um, and, and that the Trump administration isn't even trying to put up, a, you know, even a, a, a sort of sham, um, you know, complaint about it is it's it's disappointing, yeah. to say the least. Nick, I like I, I get. I get your points. I'm assuming you're you're thinking along the lines of uh, the same thing, Bill. But I, I like I I read this and I go, this is this is U.S. policy. He he's just dumb enough to say it out loud. Every president mm. thinks like this. It's I I, I I you know the human rights. We talked about it a few segments ago. Yeah. You know we Saudi Arabia and Iran and Iraq and and you know, any other country in the Middle East. They do this shit all the time, and we constantly let it slide if they align with us in some way or it's economically viable for the, for us. And it's never been any different. And I don't know why anybody thinks it's ever been any different. They, they're they're terrible, yeah. terrible, terrible people. But 
they're terrible people with a lot of oil and a lot of money to spend. And he's right. If it's not us, there are other people that will take advantage of the situation. It's never, ever been any different. The only difference it's, is that Trump, you're right, says it out loud. Right. Yeah. Which well, I, I mean, would much rather have him say, as opposed to having, to, you know, something like Abu Ghraib come out or, you know, bombings in Syria or waterboarding people or, you know, CIA black sites throughout the Middle East. I would much rather have some idiot say this out loud and at least be honest about it instead of having, again, to learn it through investigative journalism and learning that we're pieces of shit behind, you know, the American people's back. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't disagree with you one bit, but I do think there's some value in pretending to uphold a principle, Nick, right? Because when, with Trump's position, it, human rights are totally gone. If at least you're shamed into lying about caring about human rights, it means that you on some level recognize that they exist. And you know you're not going to always, you know, preserve them, but you're you're not you're, you're you at least have enough credibility to lie about it. You have enough credibility <laughs> yes. to lie yes. about it, because because <laughs> Trump's view is like uh, it's all transactional, doesn't matter. But the reality is we should be upset by what Saudi Arabia did. It's awful. It's terrible. This UN report has some audio clips of what these guys were saying before Khashoggi comes in. I mean, they're talking about where to cut them at the joints, how to put them in bags. This Very is important. brutal, brutal stuff. It's because... hard to fit a person in one Ziploc bag. Oh, God. They are they are a terrible regime. Nick. They are. <laughs> so... They've always been there. Yes. Well, and, and to Nick's point, the only the only real difference in this case is that it was someone with American connections, right? right? Yeah. So, you know, when they when they behead and, and, you know, dismember people at other times, it just goes unnoticed by us. Correct. But, Hey, there's there's a there's a uh, you know it's not a certain level there's a lot of hypocrisy yeah. that goes into how dare you when it's an american connection and otherwise we don't really give a shit um but uh, the other you know to your point bill we you know in my foreign policy class we ended with a, a, an article that talked about how essentially trump is no different than previous presidents his foreign policy the only thing that's different is that he's saying the mm -hmm. kind of appalling stuff that we do um but we had a, an interesting kind of debate in the class about it, and, and a number of students argued essentially what you're arguing. And I don't, I don't know that I disagree, which is that um, hypocrisy serves a purpose, right? If if everyone is hypocritical, so if you know if if everyone claims to care about, I don't know, I think about the environment, right? Um, if everyone is hypocritical about the environment, they all talk about how important the environment is, but then they go home and they don't recycle or whatever. Um, even if that becomes the sort of expectation, it does change some behavior. Even if mm -hmm. everyone is walking out and putting the recycling by the curb just to put on a show for the neighbors, even though they don't really give a shit about it, that still is recycling that's being done, right? And so <laughs> even if, you know, if everyone is hypocritically um, sort of paying lip service to human rights, that's still better than just outright saying we don't we don't care about human rights. I, I, I agree with that. And I think the 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 change is in, it's in the people of the specific country that you're talking about. It's not in the governmental organisms that are actually doing this stuff. We uh, we most of us think that the U.S. you know acts justly and we are we're on the right side of history. But when it comes down to geopolitics and how international relations actually work it's it is transactional it's what it is it's economic stability and economic interest and being able to make sure that you have enough for the people who you're spinning this bullshit yarn for so they don't turn on you i, I like i i i I, I, I want us to be those yeah. people. And I do think we we are infinitely better, especially than, than Saudi Arabia or, or half oh, yeah. the countries Absolutely. that we talk about on this podcast. And that matters, but right? That does yeah. matter. But 
when it when you get to that echelon of power, you don't give a shit about that. It's about getting something done. It, well, it's a mix, right? So in, in international relations theory, there's realism, which is states pursue their interests. And, and then there's also this other theory that Phil and I talk a lot about, which is constructivism, which is that norms and ideas matter. And I think the reality for U.S. foreign policy, it's a mix of the two. We are realist, but we have these norms and that sense of identity that... And, and what is appropriate that shapes our behavior, kind of gnaws at us. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not all interest all the way down, but Trump is. You know, Trump is, he doesn't, he doesn't care about what's appropriate. He doesn't care about norms and all that sort of stuff. And that's what's revealing about him. Oh, this is interesting. Speaking of which, yeah. the next topic. Right, all right, this is a perfect transition. <laughs> caring about what's appropriate. <laughs> all right, good. So the sexual indiscretions of the president were once again in the news this week as advice columnist E. Jean Carroll uh, accused President Trump of sexually assaulting her in the mid-1990s in her forthcoming book. Carroll claims that the incident occurred in 1995 or 1996 in a Bergoff Goodman dressing room. An expert that uh, excerpt that includes her account was published on in New York Magazine's website early Friday. Trump, in a statement, emphatically denied the incident. He said, I've never met this person in my life. He said, although the excerpt in New York Magazine was accompanied by a photograph that showed the two together at a 1987 party. He further said, she is trying to sell a book. That should indicate her motivation. It should be sold in the fiction section. A few days later, he also pointed out that, quote, I'll say it with great respect. Number one, she's not my type. That's just not respectful, Mr. President. (laughs) Number two, it never happened. It never happened, okay? Uh, Carol is the 22nd woman to publicly accuse Trump of sexual assault or harassment. Now, what struck me most about this incident uh, is that most major newspapers didn't cover the story on the front page. We've reached a point where a credible rape allegation or assault against the President of the United States isn't news. Or maybe more accurately, the media no longer knows how to report on the president's outrageous behavior. Phil, for me, this is one of those moments where you are forced to recognize just how much Trump has changed our world. Uh, did you have a similar reaction? Uh, yeah, to, to some extent. Um, you know, I saw people... Uh, I mean, so first of all, the, there's, there's so much that's kind of awful about this story. I mean, I've seen people pointing out the the idea that his defense that he didn't rape her is that she's not his type, oh, that God. the implication that if she were his type, he would have raped that her. That's OK. Like, that it's, it's, <laughs> it's just insane. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, in terms of the like, it's not getting that much press. I saw another I saw somebody on Twitter referencing the Stalin quote. So Stalin you know, famously said that one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. And it's kind of the same. That oh, one yeah. rape allegation is a is a story and 22 is a statistic. Right. And so it I, I do think in some ways, um, you know, we've we've I, this has become what's the phrase like this is this is. Uh, uh, kind of rolled into what you get when you get with Trump, right? People have 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 accepted this as part of the Trump story, um, and so I think it's going to be along those partisan lines. It's going to be people who um, are really upset about it, and then a lot of people who are going to dismiss it. Um, and it's kind of this weird division that we have in in society. But yeah, I mean, I think to some extent. I mean, the other part you were talking about how much he's changed our political world. The other part is that he's done a couple of big interviews in the last week and a half national interviews on on with with supposedly big journalists and Stephanopoulos, Chuck Todd, all the yes, yep. 
those interviews were shit, yeah. right? I mean, it was like, hey, Mr. President, where are you going to put your library? Like, no actual hard questions about policy or about, you know, what, you know, pushing him on any of this stuff. No questions about, uh, you know, detaining uh, people at the at the border. No questions about Iran. It's just, you know, that's that's where, uh, in some ways, that's the the media has kind of allowed this to become a non-story. Chuck it's Todd was get the profit motive into it. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. That's good. Nick, what was your, your reading of all this? I, I don't know. It's like it's kind of the point, you know. I just we're we're numb to these things yeah. at this point. It's your prison analogy. It is my prison analogy. But um, I like, you know, I I don't want to be the person that that Phil is talking about. But it it's it seems marginally dubious to me, and mm-hmm. and it's gotten to the point where I just I constantly think that because none of these people are taking him to court. It's never brought up in, in you know, bef- prior to him being president or at any other point where it's not a book deal or something else related to the media. Um, it, it, it may be true. I don't even know any point mm-hmm. at this point. And at this point, I, I, don't, I don't care. Like, I, I, I care if, it's, if it is true, I absolutely care. But it's, everything is so muddied and so convoluted at this point partly because he is who he is and he's made the system that convoluted but partly because it's just this 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 need for just to dismantle the other team too i think that that's part of it and i don't know if that's a timing thing that you're doing this or like i or or it's just an outright lie i don't know anymore and it's it it's it's like I hate the fact that this has made me question mm-hmm. any of these sort of allegations because it didn't used to be like that. This would be a big. This, this would be a this huge, would be it. Yeah. huge deal. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. Take him to court. Like, the, what the, do you want? The pace of this too. I think the pace of Trump world is so quick. I mean, this will be a story for two days and then it'll be gone. And I don't know. This. It, it really. It troubled me that I was mad at the New York Times because they were one. I think they included this story in their like book section or something. I mean, the New York Times, and so this is an editorial decision where the New York Times says, a credible assault allegation, we're going to relegate to her talking about her book, not the allegation itself. Now, the New York Times has has sort of come back and said, oh, we made a mistake, and other journalists, uh, other papers have done the same thing. But they got caught in this moment where, I mean, whether any of the individual 22 claims, some of them could be not true, but I think... The totality of it is that a lot of these women are absolutely true, and this is you know this should cause a reckoning for this president, but it's it's not going to. We're going to move on, mm-hmm. and uh, a week from now we won't even remember this, and that makes me wonder. I mean, I, I get why women don't want to come forward. Why would you want to do right. that to have two days of coverage and then have it go away? And um, yeah, it, it's 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 sad in that sense. Well, I mean, Bill Clinton's had what. 30 years of allegations yes. and still hasn't had a reckoning. So, I exactly. mean, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's bad. Powerful men get away with it. I think, I'm glad you brought up Bill Clinton because this is, I mean, Trump's indiscretions are, are important, but Bill Clinton as well. Both of these presidents have managed to go by years and years and still be recognized as heroes and all of that. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the world we They're live just in. just terrible people. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's 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 move west and talk about what's going on in Oregon. So 11 Republican senators fled the legislature and, this, uh, and the state to thwart the passage of a cap-and-trade proposal that would dramatically lower greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 in Oregon. The minority GOP caucus wants the plan to be sent to voters instead of being instituted by lawmakers 
uh, but negotiations with Democrats collapsed, and they staged a headline-grabbing walkout. In a dramatic move on Thursday, Governor Brown authorized the state police to round up and bring back the missing state senators. Now, this is not an unusual tactic. Not long ago, Democratic lawmakers in Texas and in Wisconsin blew town for the same purpose, to throw sand in the gears of the legislative act of which they did not approve and could not stop by conventional means. What was distinct about Oregon was that right-wing extremist groups came forward to pledge on social media to provide armed protection for the Republican senators. Offers came from groups like three per- the Three Percenters and anti-government militia. Senate Republicans quickly rejected such offers and denied requesting any aid. Uh, quote, the senators are not with any militias and they're not accepting their help. Kate Gillum, a spokeswoman for the Senate Republicans, tells uh, said they're not interested. Now that's good. But it does raise questions of the state of our political system. Now, Phil, should we laugh this off or should we see it as a sign of future partisan violence? So it is worth I, I saw today that a bunch of militia people did actually show up outside the state house or whatever. So even though they were told we don't need you, they still showed up. <laughs> They've um, got time. Anyway, yeah. The way I think, I don't think it's something to laugh off. I don't think it's necessarily a sign of future partisan violence. I do think it serves as a warning. Um, because, I, you know, there's, there's part of me that I, I'm sort of torn on the tactic. Uh, there's part of me that thinks, look, this is the, the way the rules are set up. It's not how, you know, fleeing to avoid a vote is not what is, it's not in the spirit of the rules, yeah. but technically it's in the, you know, it's, it's within the way, you know, it's within the, Um, the structure of the rules but it does get to something that seems to be eroding which is this notion in politics that it's okay to lose right that that the other side has beaten you at this moment and what you do um, is to make the argument to convince other people and you know to, to 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 bring your side back to the table with a winning argument with a winning coalition or whatever um, and so the, I, the you know, that's that's where I'm I'm, I'm sort of torn. I, I I just like the idea of a loyal opposition that we made we didn't win this time, but we're here. We're going to put up a fight. We're going to lose this vote. We're going to make a stink about it because, in that fight, we're going to convince people that we're right. And and you know, the next two years, four years from now, we'll we'll fix this law or we'll change it. So I don't like that. That's the route we're we're going down. The other part of it that I think serves as a warning is the violence part, which is not being endorsed by the politicians in office. But as we go down this partisan line, as we go down this path of, of demonization of the other, you know, it's not it's not the mainstream people who are going to be violent, right? It's the people at the fringes. We've talked about this before, about the danger of Trump's rhetoric or other people's rhetoric, but they it may not mean anything to them what they're saying, but it means something to some people. And so it's the it's not that, you know, I, I worry that there's a chance that the, the mainstream politicians would never go down this route of violence. But at the fringes, as people buy more and more into the rhetoric that the other side is evil, that they're the problem, that violence becomes a more and more logical solution to the problems. And so all of that to say, I don't know that this is necessarily where we're headed. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a warning of where we could be headed if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. Nick, what's your read on this? Um, yeah, the the militia thing, the violence thing. I I mean, I I think, like Phil said, it it could become an issue farther down the road. This is I don't think this is that inflection point. Um, the the troubling thing about this is, and again, we talked about it 
previously on the podcast is this this polarization, especially at the state level. Uh, what was it? All but one state legislature is mm-hmm. controlled yes. by a, a single party. Um, that the legislation that they're pushing through isn't necessarily um, vetted out through compromise anymore. It's about getting as much through that you think you're going to need to do to keep your voters um, and not have any sort of relation to to the other side of the political spectrum. Um, And that seems to be driving people more and more towards the fringes. Um, That's worrisome for me, uh, more than anything, because I think that's the, the key factor in in breeding violence where you have these people that are you're not willing to compromise you you don't want to listen to the other side and you're willing to listen to fringe elements that most normal sane people would not listen to but I, I mean on top of that you have again legislatures that are pushing through not necessarily controversial but something that is that people would want to have opinions about that affects their daily lives you know it, we've, we've seen it in Illinois you're pushing through uh, marijuana legislation, progressive um, tax structure, and sanctuary city legislation without any input from the people of Illinois. I, and I think that, uh, again, dr- drives people out towards the fringes. Um, I, I just, I, 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 that is a, a greater threat to the stability of local democratic institutions and the democratic structure of the country as a whole more than I think that these mm-hmm. militia kind of fringe elements um, would be. And the reality is we're going to see more and more of this. Like, I'm glad you referenced that. You know, Previously we've talked about this, that these state legislatures, both Democrat and Republican, are going to continue to move in those directions. And then how do those minority voters, the Democrat and Republicans in those states, how do they respond? Uh, I, I, I don't think that violence is, a, is a, a real threat. And I was actually very happy that the Republicans said, no, we don't want this. We're not interested right. in this. You know, put your guns away. Uh, because that's important. Those political voices can help moderate that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Let's, let's finish with a fun one. Yep. All right. So the personal finance website WalletHub has released the results of a study of the most patriotic states in the union. WalletHub compared the states across 13 key indicators of patriotism, including measures of military engagement and civic engagement. Now, I'm not going to suggest that this represents the highest standards of social science, but the 4th of July is coming. And who doesn't like a good measure of American patriotism? The five most patriotic states are number five, Idaho, Utah, Vermont, Wyoming, and number one. New Hampshire. Live free or die, baby. (laughs) (laughs) And the least patriotic states are Texas, West Virginia, California, New York, and, not surprising, New Jersey. Phil, uh, (laughs) your current home, New Hampshire, is number one, and your former home, Texas, is one of the least patriotic states. I was kind of surprised by that. Are, Are you surprised by this, or do we just say this is all... You know, bad social science. <laughs> this <laughs> is why polls are bullshit. <laughs> yes, mostly the the latter. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, so having you know having lived in New Hampshire now for f- four years, there's something to it, right? The civic engagement part of it. Um, you know, people take it seriously. There, there is a lot of patriotism out. You know, you see lots of what I think of as kind of traditional patriotism, national pride. You know, flying flags. Um, but yeah, people take, you know, it's been really remarkable to watch in the, the lead up to the primaries, how seriously p- 
people of New Hampshire take their their role in in sorting through candidates and, and voting. There's this this tradition that's still alive of uh, town meetings where all these small towns, all the citizens gather together and have these debates and stuff. So in that sense, I think there's there's a lot about that that's 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 great. Um, and I like the idea of rethinking what we mean by patriotism. Um, and the idea that's being engaged, civically engaging, voting, you know, participating, that that's a key part of patriotism. I love that idea. The part that's a, that's a problem about this is, um, you know, the, the states that get listed as the ones where that are least patriotic, they're largely big states, right? <laughs> yes. Where civic engagement is more difficult. It's more difficult to be in. I don't know how they measured civic engagement, but civic engagement is not. It's not pointless. I don't mean that, but um, it's it's harder to convince someone that going out and getting involved is worth it in Texas or California, California where right. they're sort of safe states where you don't have presidential candidates coming where, you know, the district that I came from in Texas before I moved to New Hampshire was one, it was totally safe. It didn't matter if I voted or not. A Republican was going to win that district no matter what. Um, and so, you know, that's, it's, it's easier to be engaged in places where it, it matters. So I think that all that to say, I think the methodology is off, but I like the idea of like <laughs> rethinking what yeah. it means. It's yeah. There's a, the whole, whole thing with the military is also a little weird, but uh, we can talk about that. Yeah. In a different well, and I think to your point, the right, the small states, so the, you know, the top five were Idaho, Utah, Vermont, Wyoming, those in New Hampshire, those are all small states, right? You, yeah. Your voice can matter. Right. Mm -hmm. Nick, you're a patriot. <clears throat> Almost exclusively. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is it? Like, <laughs> no, like I, I, I agree with Phil. I, I, if you're measuring patriotism, it shouldn't be the, you know, the number of flags that you have or the number of guns that you have or, or you know, how loud that you yell. It should be how you handle yourself, handle yourselves in, um, what's the the, the combat, combat? Like, you know, in, yeah, only in combat. <laughs> really, yeah. If you are just a, a murderous piece of shit, yeah, you are a red-blooded American. Um, no, I, I, it really should be based around you know your your willingness to kind of put yourself into the system and be knowledgeable about the system and to create an informed society as opposed to you know just latching on to to rhetoric and 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 political ideology which seems to be more and more a measure of patriotism which just seems anathema to me um yeah i i mean in terms of new hampshire i'm not super surprised texas i'm a little surprised yeah, at. yeah. the rest of them california new york they could be other countries at this point <laughs> the, the other thing at a sort of big picture level those who've traveled outside of the united states you quickly realize how patriotic we are as a country mm -hmm. it's it's crazy the amount of flags that we have and how it really you, should be measured by that right the and number you, of flags that you have <laughs> when you travel to europe you see nationalism <laughs> and you see other other ways of that, that states identify themselves but nobody is as patriotic patriotism being measured as love of country right so nationalism being love of the nation which is your ethnic identity and all that kind of stuff you know put together but but patriotism we are it's us maybe the australians and then that's it right um, <laughs> yeah it's we're, we're a crazy patriotic country and the fourth of july is really insane that way mm -hmm. well, the chinese are pretty patriotic mainly because they have to be 
There's plenty right. of camps that they could go to when they're North not. Korea has some, yeah. You know, yeah, the North I, Koreans are good at it, too. It's full patriotism, Nick. It's not, there's not, you know, <laughs> Americans really do love but their country. Love the you're not really putting us in good company here. It's <laughs> right. yes. Other countries that are crazy about their own <laughs> country. And, and here's the thing. One of the things that bugs me is, every, you know, some people will say patriotism is good and nationalism bad. I think that's, that's garbage, right? The reality is that patriotism can be both good or bad. Nationalism can be both good or bad. And to say that, oh, just, you know, the love of country is okay but love of you know your your nationalism is not that's that's inaccurate mm-hmm. it, it's about how you define it yes. right it's about what it what it means to be a good american and right. that's that's where i mean that's what it all comes down to is that and that's a debate that i don't think we have we have all the time in indirect ways as we right. talk about immigration as we talk about you know taxes all sorts of other stuff we talk about it yes. about you know real americans and in, in elections and so we have that conversation indirectly and it's one that we should have more directly about what does it mean to be a good citizen yep yeah hyper hyper patriotism can be deeply deeply troubling or it can also be a really good thing so mm-hmm. yeah Happy Fourth of July, Nick. Happy. Well, and we'll be here before the Fourth That's of right. July. That's right. Of course. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. just, I'm just. Don't get old. I mean, I'm just you know being patriotic too. <laughs> Happy 26th of June, guys. There you That's go. That's right. Yes, <laughs> it's got to be some kind of holiday. Um, I mean, if you are a red-blooded American like the rest of us, very patriotic. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Politics. Uh, wait, no, Twitter uh, Barstool Paul P O L. Facebook at Barstool Politics. One of those two. Um, Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics. Uh, the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, leave us a review or a comment or a like questions. or whatever. Questions. Yeah. Um, don't leave us questions in the in the reviews. That would no, be bad. That's true. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market where you can uh, buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners who use the promo link when opening up a new account receive up to a twenty dollars match on their first deposit. Uh, so, for example, if you open up a twenty dollars account. Predicted will match that $20. Just use the promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 and check it out. Anything else, guys? Nope. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Shut up and sit down.